hello. Oh, hey, teachers. Thanks for tuning in. It's been uh, a really long time since I've been able to do this. It feels really good to finally uh, sit back down and, and, and speak into the microphone about a lot of the thoughts I have on education. And really, thank you so much um, for listening and uh, for feedback, giving me feedback. I've received really great reflections and comments about this work recently, and it does mean a lot to me. Uh, innovating education is so fundamentally important to who I am, as it is with so many other teachers, parents, students, and other types of educational leaders. Um, and I can't thank you too, so, uh, enough for, for listening. As a parent looking at my own children's education opportunities, um, well, I'm struggling. Um, my wife and I are so unhappy with what's available and at a cost we can afford. I'm not satisfied with even the best traditional settings. If uh, you recall uh, from my interview with Michael Skura, uh, his comment from the last episode about how his son real, uh, recently talked to him about hating school and finding it ridiculous, and not for lack of wanting or excitement for learning. Um, the comment is a huge fear I have for my own children. My wife and I are actually looking into starting our own school um, because if you can't find a solution, make one, right? Uh, she's a librarian by trade. I have a master's in education leadership and a principal endorsement. We've both owned a business together, and I co-created an education-related nonprofit. We're the perfect candidates in a lot of respects, but of course, money is a significant wall to that endeavor, um, even though we have the best intentions and just want to make a better world for our kids and uh, our, our neighborhood and the kids around us. Anyway, I think that's a topic for another episode, maybe, and um, I digress because there's so much that I've been wanting to say specifically. Uh, it's, been so, it's been far too long since I've recorded another episode for this pod, or any other for that matter. Uh, I tried hard to get those first three in before the school year would hit so I could come in uh, into this school year with some skin in the game and hopefully use that as motivation to keep up. My low bar was at least to record one episode a month. We are now well over two months into the school year uh, I, and uh, no episode until right now, I guess. Oops. <laughs> uh, it's not for lack of trying or because of laziness. In fact, I, I, I did a thing. I, I um, made a webinar, to be exact, or recorded a webinar on how creativity will save schools. Uh, and I started working on a TEDx presentation of the same title, How Creativity Will Save Schools, that I thought was going to be in October. So it would have been done by now. And then it was pushed back to February. Um, so I put a lot of time into that and then shifted gears um, to, you know, all the other things we have to do as teachers <laughs> on a daily basis. And with, you know, two little kids at home trying to be as mindful and present in their lives, because even though I try to, as hard as I can to um, freeze every moment in time by posting it on social media, um, you know, they, they grow really fast and it's, I don't want to, uh, look, uh, turn around one day and realize I missed my kids, um, childhoods. So, um, you know, that's important as well. Uh, I've been doing a lot of deep digging into socio-emotional learning goals. 
I attended an amazing conference on the subject and have been working hard with a few committees here in the district focused on, uh, on innovating education through that theme. I have so much content I want to cover uh, today, but who has the time for that? <laughs> Topics uh, including more in-depth conversations on the creative process and how to integrate that into the classroom and at the building and district level as well. Uh, though I'll be connecting to the SEL theme throughout the next few episodes, I want to give this super important concept at least one of its own episodes. There are so many important elements to think about when, uh, when one's goal is to innovate education, and I want to make sure to give those time. Um, I'm looking at giving each of the steps in my creative process, uh, each of the six steps, its own episode, and also talking about some of the phases that I believe are important as well that fall in between some of those steps. Um, it's honestly, this just education in general, it's such a massive and interconnected system that requires delicate care and differentiation with every unique learning community. And it's uh, inexorably linked to our politics and economics as well, which are their own monsters, which is something that came up in the Michael Skura conversation, just kind of connecting to the work on the state level. And I think that's another episode that requires its own time and consideration, how to lobby and how to motivate policy change from the top down. Um, what I want to do right now with you is reflect a little bit slash uh, respond to that last episode with Michael Skura, um, the always awesome Michael Skura, in which we primarily focused on the structure, the system, the foundation, the soil from which we can grow our curriculum, our learning experiences which in turn cultivate our children's lives and by extension, our society. We design our systems and they in turn design us. This, this idea is, is ontological design and we must be careful, purposeful uh, to design the system with people in mind given that it has so much power. Um, I can't really speak enough to how I believe that the structure with which we, we build from, it, it really sets the tone for everything that can be done or what's allowed. What are the limits of that system? And I feel that us, a lot of arts teachers, uh, electives teachers, they, uh, people trying to innovate education, they understand that that, level, that bar that the system allows for is a little bit, uh, a lot too confined and tight. So um, a quote that I like to use uh, that suggests this idea is that um, and I quote, every system is specifically designed to produce the results it gets. We are all products of our education systems and we can change outcomes by changing the system. Currently in most educational communities, the traditional education systems, our structural elements, they obscure create creative and meaningful curriculum that promotes student agency. Let me just give a recent and very real example from my own classroom experience. It regards a field trip. I've been working on a huge unit experience uh, focused on identity and social division, uh, the concept of, of othering, of labeling, and looking at our differences rather than our similarities uh, through the, um, the ultimate goal is for students to design a project of their own that uses the, the vehicle of masks. So looking at those themes and then um, exploring it through the vehicle of masks. And uh, we've connected to been inspired and influenced by a variety of resources, uh, such as the documentary, The Mask You Live In, 
which is mainly about toxic masculinity. I always feel the need to point out that using the term toxic masculinity does not mean that all masculinity is toxic. Um, masculinity, just like femininity and other forms of gender expression can and are positive, but they have uh, sometimes, maybe too often, they aren't or are expressed in extremes that can have negative impact. Um, this particular documentary, which I highly recommend, although it is quite deep and uh, difficult at times for students to watch, it, it also uses the concept of masks and how students prepare their masks every day for how they're going to look act and live within the school they attend, and how these masks hide really important elements of their being, of their experiences, that when consistently covered up can fester and lead to dangerous outcomes. Um, this movie, this documentary is also kind of the brother documentary to uh, misrepresentation, which focuses on uh, toxic femininity in our culture and examines the patriarchy and just a lot of the pressures that, that uh, young women, female students are experiencing as they try to grow and develop and um, achieve. Um, so anyway, uh, as another part of this project, I planned for students to visit the Chicago Field Museum. And then they were going to draw the many masks, sources of inspiration and influence, right? Step one of the creative process both as a way to practice their observational drawing skills and to connect to themes for their future projects. Anyhow, sadly, a week before the trip, I found out that 22 out of 25 students were planning not to attend the field trip because, quote, they could not afford to miss a day. 22 out of 25 did not want to have a meaningful experience, something they would likely never forget, and an opportunity to deepen their learning in a real and experiential way because they couldn't afford the stress of missing one or two classes, lectures. So let's, I really want to unpack that for a moment because um, I asked students, uh, I wanted to go dig into this and just hear what they had to say about it, and I've also connected with some teachers about it. Here's why students said they can't miss a day. This is nearly verbatim from their lips. So the first thing was lecture and notes. Uh, the pounds of information we have to cram in our brains to remember for a test of that information that we likely will not remember days after the test. That was almost out of a student's mouth. A quick personal anecdote. Um, I personally aced extremely tough exams in college that I would utterly fail today. Um, the question to me is, uh, uh, I'm recording at school today, so sorry for that bell if you heard it. Uh, the, so the question to me is, what do we really want students to learn and what leads to actual learning? Is it being present for a lecture to take notes that someone else could have just copied and shared with them anyway? Or do we want them to learn for future careers? Or do we want students to learn to love learning and focus on content that help them develop as humans to live happy and fulfilled lives? Does stressing out about missing a lecture or one day's notes fit into our goals and ideals of what we want for education? Um, number two, students said they are nervous to miss important homework assignments that they will have to make up later. Our students uh, at, at my school often spend three hours on average on homework a day covering work so they don't fall behind in class. Sometimes they, these might be meaningful projects that require connecting to the outside world, 
but it appears that they are most, mostly doing busy work, annotating or practicing uh, type assignments, and they're so scared of missing that assignment because they won't know what to get done that they can't miss school. Um, this is the result of the rat race that has become education, the race to cover a great deal of a prescri prescribed and standardized amount of information. Uh, that's a topic that will come up over and over as we cover the, uh, the theme of, of structure. To, you know, this race to cover all this amount of information so that everyone covers the same exact material within a semester, which I'm sure they retain, Right. I mean, God forbid we develop unique humans who offer different insights and bring a different variety of knowledge to the table to collaboratively solve complex issues in the world, um, which will be a major theme of when I talk about connections in the creative process of the, the goal should be to have people who see the world differently and come together and can offer unique viewpoints to solve complex problems uh, together collaboratively. We should be actively avoiding the result of everyone having the same exact set of knowledge and skills. And yet that's exactly what the structure is forcing us to do. Um, we are collectively strong, not individually, and we don't want everybody to have the same exact strengths and knowledge. That is, I, I mean, I can't understate how uh, dangerous that could be to creativity and learning in general. Progress. All of this and more are part of the uh, expectations and pressure to check off boxes so that they can get into the college they want and try to fill the expected career for a student of their pedigree. Uh, in connection with this, um, I was reading that uh, studies are showing parents are becoming more and more focused on their child's achievement rather than nurturing qualities like, say, kindness. Some seem to regard their children's accolades rather than their character as a personal badge of honor and their children's failures as a negative reflection on their own parenting. This might sound a bit like an over-the-top exaggeration, which it might be, um, but there is data to support that. There's evidence to support this and to a point, right? Because there is definitely some truth and it speaks to many other important topics uh, that maybe aren't as obvious in that, that are important when we discuss uh, socio-emotional learning and, and more, um, more directly. But what is happening in our culture outside of the classrooms that are cultivating maybe not the most healthy or positive uh, dispositions in our students? And all of this probably sounds harsh, but I felt fairly defeated as an educator that just wants what's best for their kids in that moment when 22 out of 25 students said that they weren't going on a meaningful field trip. Something they would likely remember for the rest of their lives because they need more of what they don't want to do and what brings them stress. Uh, I left the room for a minute to collect myself in that moment because it's not the students I'm disappointed in, it's the system. I don't want to send my children to a traditional school because it's the teachers and students I'm worried about, it's because the system confines and dictates what the teachers do and how students act. I think people are relatively good. I believe in people. I think most of the people with extremely differing opinions from me are good people who love their families and also want, want what's best for the world. But the structures dictate the outcomes. It's the system that causes people to hate one another and argue. Um, we haven't learned how to be better. 
we, we all have good reasons for why we think and feel the way we do about something. The system that cultivates those experiences has a lot of influence on how we connect. And just to reflect on that kindness statement for a minute ago, my wife is currently reading uh, Good Morning, I Love You, Mindfulness and Self-Compassion Practice uh, to Rewrite Your Brain for Calm, Clarity, and Joy. This is from author Shauna Shapiro, Ph.D., Um, She recently came across a section about studies regarding kindness, health, and creativity. You know, there's there's a really important reason why there are so many books on these subjects today, right? Anyway, Dr. Shapiro draws connections between kindness and curiosity through neuroscience. And she says, it might be surprising that kindness and curiosity can bring about great change, but neuroscience is proving it. Studies show that when we are judgmental and shaming instead of kind and curious, the learning centers of the brain shut down, shuttling resources to our survival instincts and robbing us of the resources we need to, re- to effectively respond, grow, and learn. In contrast, neuroscientists and psychologists are finding that an attitude of kindness strengthens the learning centers of the brain by bra- bathing our system in dopamine, one of the brain's neurotransmitters responsible for learning and rewards. This expands our perspective and opens us to greater creativity and resourcefulness. This is one of the many reasons that social-emotional learning is linked to creativity. Of course, further research has found very obviously that when people are curious about a subject, they are far better at learning it, in part because curiosity activates our reward systems. Further studies, including a recent one through Stanford University of Engineers and engineering students, found that a mindful, open, and kind attitude was the strongest predictor of innovation. Stress, especially the type of stress our students are consumed in daily, impedes their ability to be creative and to learn. This fact is fundamental to this episode. And I repeat, the stress, especially the type of stress our students are consumed in daily, impedes their ability to be creative and to learn. We see this daily, anecdotally, and it is being proven in the science Uh, in a very direct way. All of this caused me to think about my own past as a high school student, which brought to mind a time I was heading to school. I had just gotten off the train and was getting on the bus and found a seat near the back where a group of students in, uh, in there were discussing the ridiculousness of high school. One of them responded by saying, no one says that you have to do this. No one says that you have to complete four years of this torture. You can drop out and get your GED and then be in the same place, but even sooner than a high school graduate. You might be thinking, but then what? Well, I reflected on this a little bit last week and thought about how I was a subpar high school student and that this was over 20 years ago, and yet education hasn't really changed. Um, I thought about how I never bought into all that mindless routine and tried to enjoy my teenage years. Um, I'm really thankful that I did that, choosing to focus on playing hockey instead, which was a huge focus in my life. Um, I really enjoyed my time as a teenager outside of school. My high school grades and test scores weren't great. I didn't pay for test prep, uh, along with the fact that I had no idea what I wanted to do in life, like most high school students. I just decided to go to a junior college after high school. The change in structure that I uh, experienced there was a very welcome breath of fresh air. I started falling back in love with learning. I say back in love because I loved learning before elementary school ripped it away from me. Um, I was characterized as a toddler as someone who is very curious and uh, just 
loved learning. And then when I got to school, I just really didn't feel like that was a place for learning. Um, and when I got to junior college, it just felt like it was a little bit more on my terms. I started getting really good grades, eventually got straight A's. I finished all my gen eds for a fraction of the price. And after finishing my associate's degree, I was able to transfer pretty much anywhere I wanted because success in junior college equates more directly to success at a university. So think about this. You could start junior college by 17, save approximately $40,000 while completing all of your gen ed requirements, right, as opposed to the cost at a university, maybe even more, know more about what you want to do for a career, be more ready for the structure and flow of college, and then transfer to a university with the grad program you want while avoiding many of the unnecessary stressors of high school that are causing terrible stress-related epidemics in our nation, right? We're all aware of all the stress-related epidemics. Now, I'm not advocating for what I just said of dropping out and getting your GED. There are obvious holes, but I'd feel pretty confident debating it against the counterpoint. The major point to take away is it doesn't have to be the way that it is. We don't have to follow the status quo. Two great quotes I've heard recently are one, and I quote, the opposite of bravery is not cowardice. It's the status quo. We actually need to be scared in order to be brave. The second is that, quote, tradition is like peer pressure from dead people. <laughs> I really like that one. So I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm ready for change. I'm ready for a lot of change. And I know that not everybody can, can swallow or is at the same place that I am. I, I have to remind myself of this fact when I'm having conversations with other teachers all over the building on a daily basis um, because I'm actively trying to cultivate the conversations that, that will lead to uh, meaningful change and action on our conversations. Um, but I'm ready for it. Uh, and I think that we can change the system. And I think more people are ready for it than not. It's really a matter of facilitating the right kind of dialogue to listen effectively, educate compassionately, and problem solve as a community once we identify major sources of the problem. I will admit that people seem to be unnecessarily resistant to change. Um, ego comes into play. They just don't want to deal with it. Maybe they're too busy to really think about making any changes in their habits because it just becomes mindless and it's easier to do that than it is to um, you know, actually think about what we should be doing. Um, even people who seem to agree with the need struggle, struggle to identify and act on the change needed in their own practice. And then they just tried to justify not doing it, even though this was right after confirming the need. I've had that happen numbers of times with teachers and, and education leaders. See what happens when there's a lack of creativity in our educations. Um, people struggle to see the next step, to understand the process, to, to enjoy the process. But still, the majority of teachers and parents I speak with seem to be ready for a paradigm shift. They are hip to this mess. More and more teachers are talking about truly becoming student-focused. Some are even ready to go beyond just rhetoric. But what does that actually mean, and how do we get from here to there? Um, and just you know, to speak to that point of teachers being ready, I've had conversations with teachers that would tell me that they feel like, for instance, homework should not really be a thing. And yet they would never share that opinion in their department because they don't want to deal with the retribution of saying something that would come off as so extreme, yet they feel as, you know, 
professionals and really educated professionals that that is what the evidence is showing should be our choice, but they're scared to share it with their peers. I believe a big part of all this requires recognizing having the courage to change the failures at the foundation, as I just mentioned. The opposite of bravery is not cowardice, it's status quo. We have to be brave and willing to get some things wrong. We're already getting so much wrong. We have the data and evidence surrounding uh, learning and human development. It doesn't jive with the system. We know this. The realities of how we grow as individuals and as a society conflict with the current system. And that means the system is failing in a bad way. So let's reflect on it and innovate it. We have to be brave enough to admit we are wrong or maybe even scared to leave the comfort of the status quo, and it's okay to get it wrong. I mentioned um, FDR in our last conversation with Michael Skura, how he was you know, really known for just trying things. You know, All the programs that he implemented, there were so many other programs that failed, and it took those failures to find the ones that actually worked. We have to be willing to get things wrong. You know, Right now, there's a huge discourse around you know, healthcare for for Americans. And it's like, we're going to have to like, just talk about this until we're, you know, dead, because we won't try anything. So if it doesn't work, if the system we're going to try doesn't work, we can tweak it and fix it and make it work, right? We have to be willing to roll with it and learn from the failures. But we're never going to get there if we just keep talking about it. But before we dig deeper into what our norm education system looks like from a fundamental level, I want to pause and ask a really, really, really simple question. Are you ready for this? I know it's crazy, but what do we want schools to provide our children? What do we want our children to experience and learn? Crazy question, right? What a ridiculous question to ask. Um, I've been asking this a lot lately as I search for a solution with my, my wife for our own children's education. Currently, our oldest, he just turned four and is in a part-time outdoor school at a local nature center. They explore the outdoors and use that as the influence for learning. I really wish he could go to this type of school for the rest of his life, but it doesn't exist. Why doesn't it exist? We've looked very hard into the question of what we want for our children, and I'll share with you our own answer. Um, We want them to be inspired. We want them to love learning to experience the awe I see in their reactions to learning now uh, for the rest of their lives. I want them to build their own learning experiences based on a personal and careful reflection of their skills, dispositions, and needs. I want them to learn how to be more kind and caring for others and the world, how to love themselves and how to love others. I want this for them when they are 10, when they are 15, 21, 75, and forever. I want them to remain curious and excited about the neural storm that is wonder and epiphany. I want them to connect and develop their empathy muscles by extending their imaginations and as a result, lines of vision and by extension, their empathy, because they say that empathy only extends as far as our sight, right? I want creativity, collaboration, emotional intelligence, and agency, the actual number one skills needed in the world, to be the only core academic curriculum they know. For math, science, English, sociology, history, foreign languages, the arts, etc., to be the results of the core core curriculum I just described. I want them to connect with and breathe in the outdoors for the outside world to be their classroom. Not to only experience the subjects I just mentioned in, in the ridiculous segregated silos the normal system has created indoors and inside boxes, 
Learning is connected. That's how our brain actually works. I want them to come home and tell me that they found this amazing insect outside and it inspired them to learn more about it, which inspired them to go even deeper to learn about the species and how it's actually an integral part of our ecosystem, our community, and that they are working with a friend to build a project that helps protect these creatures he just fell in love with because it turns out they're endangered so that our world will be a better place than what he, how he found it. I want the arts integrated into multiple levels of their learning. I want all of this because it connects fundamentally with what it means to be human, to express, to innovate, learn, and feel. I also want them to get enough sleep, enough exercise, to play games, sports, explore their passions for deep, more deeply than the subjects that turn them off to appreciate and understand the subjects they struggle with, but not allow them to be destroyed, not allow that to destroy their passion for learning. I want them to work very hard and value that work because it means something more than a checkbox to get into a college that other people tell them is worthy and will make our family go bankrupt. I want them to decide their value and to work because they honestly care. Is this too much to freaking ask? Seriously. Can any education leader, teachers, parent, student look themselves in the eyes and disagree with this and then say we are doing a good job as protectors of this sacred institution of education, that we truly are cultivating the things I just mentioned? We so obviously aren't. Many of us are doing the best that we can to minimize the damage and find victories where we can. I know this sounds extreme, but it just is true. Let's shift gears a bit and get more specific. Let's, tar- let's start with the school schedule. I got myself in a tizzy. So a big part of the school structure that I believe limits those ideals that I have for education or confines them or just keeps us from getting there is the schedule. Again, consider uh, the statement that every system is especially built to produce the specific results it produces. You can reverse engineer any system to understand how it produces the results that it did. Of course, there are other variables to consider, such as nature, the biology of the human being, the culture, geography, socioeconomics, etc. This is why what works in one community might not work in another, and one reason why standardization is so fundamentally destructive to education. It's the last word I ever want to hear uttered when talking about education. A major problem is that the system is so tightly structured, so claustrophobic that it's nearly impossible for differentiation. Or to say, collaborate with other teachers. Can you imagine collaborating with with other schools when you can't even easily do it with a teacher in the same building as you? Not just the schedule or spaces, but the content itself is so compartmentalized and prescribed that finding even the curricular space is hard enough. Good luck finding shared time to plan, reflect, and then bring two different classes together. The shame, of course, is that if you have ever been a part of a well-executed collaboration between content classes, teachers, then you know about the awesome results it produces. It has provided me personally with some of the most transformative learning experiences of my teaching career. Working with another professional who understands learning from a different point of view is super powerful. But I would like to hold on the schedule concept for a moment. I'm going to offer a case study, Uh, a student of mine, a sophomore. This sophomore was actually one of the first students to tell me they weren't attending the field trip. They knew right away that the stress was just gonna be too much to bear. Um, This student doesn't have any free periods. Uh, They do have an off lab schedule that provides a free 50 minutes twice a week. So they have seven classes plus a lab in an eight period day. 
They are also uh, on student council and another club, so they get to school at about 7.20 a.m. every day. For this case study, I asked the student to share with me their schedule and assignments for the week, for this particular week, which happens to be part of Daylight Savings Week. Um, Oh, and this is important too. We have this amazing charity drive event called School Chest in which our school raises an astounding amount of money each year for a chosen charity. It, It really truly is amazing. Um, we've raised upwards of like twenty thousand or $200,000 for some charities in the past. The month of November is full of events that are largely organized and facilitated by members of the student council for this goal. This student organizes and attends events every night after school from 6.30 to 8 p.m. Um, again, plus the planning. Uh, and again, this is for that school chest event. For instance... Uh, This particular student is directly responsible for food sales during the day to raise money. It means that they sacrifice, and I quote, he made me say this, every one of their lunches. They never go to lunch uh, and have to find prep time every day to plan for it. Remember that the student has only two periods free all week, so they go to school from 7.20 uh, a.m. until 3.15 p.m. every day without a break except for two days a week. That's just under eight hours, eight hours working straight through with eight different bosses, seven teachers, and one club sponsor, and it's like working in Times Square. Oh, and it's a race. So they are also running a race with eight different bosses telling them what to do in Times Square. Then they are back doing uh, school-related work from 6.30 to 8 p.m. If we factor in planning, that's an additional two hours at least. Uh, We are at 10 hours of a school day. And this student doesn't also play on any sports teams uh, like so many other students do or do things like tech theater uh, or is in the plays, you know, things related to that uh, like a bunch of other students at my school do. So this student told me they have a psych test this week, which involves about two hours of studying, a bio test, which involves four hours of studying, a math test, about one hour of studying, and an English essay due tomorrow. They have about 30 minutes of math homework a night. The English essay requires a couple hours of prep. There will be uh, psych homework assigned after the test on Thursday, and they have at least 10 minutes of computer science homework a night. This all adds up to about 13 hours and 20 minutes of homework slash studying this week, or about two hours and 45 minutes of homework a night. That's a total of 13 hours of school-related work a day, And I'd say that's a conservative estimate. The average student at my school has between two to three hours of homework a night. Some have have been shown to have four. This is a high-performing student that might be able to complete the work in half the time as other students. Um, So keep that in mind. 30 minutes of math homework for one student could be an hour for another. This student is not the extreme either. I'd say they are about the average, um, the norm, if you will. Some uh, of our students don't do as much. Some do things like student council and play on a sports team. The average student at our school has at least one free period. Uh, A few seniors have three by their last quarter, but that's not the norm through the majority of their four years of, of high school. But let's jump back to the math for a sec. This student has 13 hours of school a day conservatively. Let's add in an hour and 30 for waking up, getting ready, and traveling to and from school. How about eating dinner? Uh, Conservatively, let's give that just 30 minutes. We are at an even 15 hours now 
which doesn't include any leisure time. A student at this age should be getting uh, at least uh, about 10 hours of sleep a day. Biologically, students from the grades of about 6th or 7th until their junior year of high school are going through extreme physical, emotional, and intellectual changes, uh, changes that are only rivaled by infant growth. There are so many aspects of these changes that need attention and support in the development and growth that is happening. Um, our student, our particular student case study is currently, uh, if they receive the amount of sleep that they need, 10, 25 hour day. So with the 10 hours of sleep plus their 15 hours of basically work day, uh, they need a 24 hour, 25 hour day without any time. And this does not lead time for self or for others. And again, that was conservative. So without adding in family time, they need an extra hour every day to complete the responsibilities of their schoolwork. This is a student at an age of intense development that requires a great deal of sensitivities. Students at this age might be at the worst time in their development to handle stress. And that's when we decide to pile it all on them. We pay little to no attention to family life outside of school goals, culture, or the seasons, for instance. We have shorter days in the fall time and people become more tired, maybe because they need added sleep. Maybe instead of moving the clocks back an hour, we can just start the workday an hour later. We need to value the siestas again, naps. Human functioning is so much better with a nap midday. I don't just say that from experience, but it's also supported by the science. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. High school students are not only supposed to get more sleep, but they aren't supposed to wake up until at least 9 a.m. That's, again, conservative. If we base the schedule off of where students actually are in their development, high school wouldn't start till about 10 a.m. This student gets to school at 7.20 a.m. The impacts of our students' sleep schedule is not to be taken lightly. It's profound. The evidence of harm is so massive that in 2014, the American Academy of Pediatrics issued a policy statement calling for middle schools and high schools to open their doors no earlier than 8.30 a.m., I know swimmers at my school that arrive between 5.30 and 6 a.m. A few years later, the CDC added its own voice, concluding that, and I quote, delaying school start times has the potential for the greatest population impact, end quote, in boosting teenage learning and well-being. Greatest population impact. Some school districts have listened to the crazy idea of basing the schedule and policy off of science and making it developmentally appropriate, and the results have been remarkable. One study of these schools examined three years of data on 9,000 students across three states from eighth grade through high school. At, le at these schools, attendance rose and tardiness declined dramatically. That's not a shocker. Students earned higher grades and improved their performance on state and national tests, which are, all, which are always the only measures we actually use to look at growth and learning, which I obviously are flawed, but I digress. At one school, the number of car crashes for teen drivers dropped by 70% after changing its start time from 7.30 to 8.55. Another study of, of 30,000 students across seven states found that two years after implementing a later start time that the graduation rates increased by more than 12%. If there was an airborne contaminant in the school causing an equal level of developmental delay as the lack of sleep does, parents would be storming the castle and demanding it to be removed before they allowed their children back in the building. Our children are extremely stressed. 
far more than in the past. The levels of hospitalizations for anxiety, depression, stress, etc., are rising dramatically. Suicide is the third leading cause of death of individuals aged from 10 to 14. For the 15 to 24 age group in 2015, there were 5,079 suicides, making it the second leading cause of death for that age range. Since 2007, there has been a 31% increase in suicides for the 15 to 19-year-old age group. Now, there are many factors to consider, of course. Same goes for the schools that saw improvements after changing their start time. Causation is difficult to prove, but surely making policy decisions based off of science and the well-being of students rather than the status quo or tradition or fear of change has far-reaching systemic impacts on the culture of that, of that school across many domains, simply because of the motivation behind the change and wanting to act on students' behalf generates. And what good, what good is teaching children how to manage stress if we are pouring an overwhelming amount of it onto them while not allowing their biological development to flourish? We haven't even covered the summer break issue, how working intensely for nine plus months and then taking two months completely off from school related stimulus isn't conducive to what we've learned about how the brain functions and learns. More healthy breaks in between and shorter summer breaks would improve learning and health for students. We know this. One issue in many schools is that there isn't enough time in the schedule for teachers to collaborate and or work in course teams. Imagine for a minute, teachers starting at the regular time of 8-ish a.m. and then students starting at 9.30 a.m. every single day. An hour and a half every day for teachers to plan and meet, collaborate, and focus on PD. They are invigorated and inspired to work with their students who are actually awake and healthy because they got the sleep they needed. That time could also be used by teachers to provide their students with more individualized feedback and assessment or to connect with parents. Anybody who's taught a first period class knows that kids are not ready to learn. Why not push it back? Students would then be starting school at a more agreeable hour for their biological needs. On occasion, they could come in early to meet with teachers or work on a big project. I mean, it all sounds like a win-win to me, and skipping back to that case study student I just uh, described, that school chess program they are part of is so amazing and, and such a fulfilling experience to provide students with uh, you know, infinite amount of valuable learning impacts and opportunities to give back and serve their communities in direct ways. It's outstanding. It's interdisciplinary. It's life-based, project-based, relevant. It's student-led and builds empathy, social skills, you name it. Why does this need to be an extra why does it have to create an impossible schedule situation for students? Shouldn't it be a part of their regular curricular experience uh, during schools every single day and be a part of their regular schedule? In the least, we could lighten up on their academic load while they are working on something so significantly large and demanding. I am unaware of a person involved in education that doesn't think the college schedule is superior to the high school one. Longer classes that meet twice a week each with the occasional class on Friday. There is far more time between classes in a day that allows students to take a break and let their brains transition. I mean, in my school, they have four minutes, uh, four minute passing periods. So you have math and then you just have a bell and you have to run to your next class and you're supposed to somehow deal with all you learn from math, you know, process that and then shift into English. It doesn't really seem like it's conducive to the process at all. There's far more time between classes in the college, college experience. And I think that is just obviously uh, beneficial. 
There's also more days between each class meeting so that they can have an even an evening and part of a day to focus on one or two of the class's content. Rather than carrying and managing the load of seven or eight classes every single day in their brains, sometimes I find it amazing that any learning even happens for these kids. These are just the most obvious ideals that should be woven into a schedule, mission, and vision, in my opinion. What about extended time for lunch, recess, play, opportunities for self-guided learning, maybe in a makerspace or an art studio, for instance? At the top of that ideals list should be a paradigm shift from thinking about time in terms of quantity towards thinking about it in terms of quality. There's substantial evidence out there that working less hours increases productivity. I'm sure some of you have heard about the recent Microsoft experiment in Japan with a 30-hour work week, the one in which productive productivity rose by 40%. Yeah, that one. We've known this fact since at least the 50s when economists were all but sure we'd be moving to a three- or four-day work week. Thanks, boomers. But what about meritocracy, right? We need to start basing our structures off of the biological realities of students, science, and the needs of our society, a socioeconomic reality that prizes creativity above all else. Creativity is about cultivating quality over quantity. Otherwise, we just have teachers and students trying to survive in a broken system, not to thrive. I mean, if we are going to assign so much homework to students after all, we should probably carve out time in their school schedule to complete it without tearing away their family or leisure time or sleep. And that brings me to homework. Um, it's time to shift gears to a less controversial theme, um, homework. So I just finished reading this book. It's called The Homework Myth by Alfie Cohn. I highly, highly recommend it. Though let me preface, I don't agree with every single thing in it, uh, and I suggest reading it with a grain of salt as well as an openness to what's being said because the book is one of the more thorough and meaningful reads I've ever experienced on education. And reading about education is something I, I, I do all the time. It's my passion. The book is full of deep readings on empirical data and evidence on a level I don't see enough in education books. In the, in the big picture, most of what Cohn is illuminating uh, is uh, where were theories I already had uh, that are largely based off my own research and experiences. I actually had to try to check my bias because after nearly every sentence, I was shouting, yes, in my head, or I knew it. Um, I tried really hard to challenge my own bias while reading it so as not to fall victim to the dangerous confirmation bias I thought I might be experiencing. It's my educated opinion that homework is a significant structural and social impediment to meaningful learning and development. I'll preface by saying that it's crucial to define what we mean when we say homework, and that I'm speaking to the traditional uh, busy work experience and the norm of homework our children have experienced for far too long. I will define it more clearly, uh, but I want to wait until we dig in a bit further to do that. I want to set the foundation. Rather, let's let's start with an inquiry, such as, what are the results we are hoping to get from assigning homework? Is that a good question? Uh, what are the traits that we want to cultivate in students? Is it a love of learning or the ability to do repetitive mindless tasks that we dread? One of my students responded to the thought of banning homework, quote, then how will they prepare us for the factory system, end quote. I know, right? A uh, pretty profound response um, from a student. Uh, this student's pretty, pretty outside the box and uh, loves to challenge the status quo. But if your goal is to prepare our, our children for mindless corporate desk jobs that they don't enjoy, well, then 
um, the homework that a lot of my students talk about might support that goal really well. However, a deep investigation of the data and research we have on homework is not supportive of it. If your goal is, say, more and higher quality learning, that is, the data and evidence doesn't even really support a positive causation towards traditional achievement measures, such as grades and test scores, which are fundamentally flawed measures, as I've said, uh, for actual learning, but that's still one of the only measures that people use. If your goal is to cultivate happy and healthy humans, then there is a definitive negative correlation with homework. In fact, more homework has a negative correlation even with grades and test scores across most of the data. Elements such as grade level and economic status are variables that can move the needle a bit here or there. In high school, there's a little closer correlation to some positive results in very specific situations, but in elementary school, there are none, even with grades and test scores. But it's important to note that the negative impacts of homework on socio-emotional data are extremely clear and loud. Did you know that it's the norm now for kindergartners, uh, kindergarten students to receive homework? A year ago, they needed a nap to get through the day. Now we're going to pile on homework on top of their long school day? For some reason, I feel the need to clarify that I'm a person with profound love of learning and that it's one of my biggest goals to cultivate that love within my own children and students, and I want them learning all day, every day. I just don't think, and the evidence supports this claim, I don't think homework is a good way to do that. But when I say homework, I'm speaking mainly to a normative traditional meaning of the word, right? And I'm willing to acknowledge the points of view of teachers and content areas that are far from my own wheelhouse of content. Um, I welcome discourse with anyone on the, on the matter, and I have been talking with uh, a lot of teachers. I met with a Spanish teacher recently to get their point of view, and I just had a conversation with some math teachers. And I will say that um, there is a, a place where they frame things in a way that seems like every once in a while homework is useful, but most of them come around to the conclusion that they only assign the homework really because they have to try to keep up with all the content that is in the curriculum that they need to cover within a quarter or a year, and it just really uh, perpetuates the race. Defining what we mean by homework, again, is part of that conversation. And it's very true that some homework experiences can lead to positive outcomes. Um, you know, I have really good teachers that swear that doing a little bit of practice here and there can help them, especially in like a subject like math that kind of has more to do with um, repetition rather than like deeper level cognition or comprehension. But anyway... There are five major domains that I like. I, I think is important to look at homework through, and this is actually in uh, the Alfie Cohn book, The Homework Myth. Uh, the one is parents. Um, the other is student life, uh, the family dynamic, time, uh, and of course the student intellectual development. Here's another quote for you: "Quote an hour spent doing homework is an hour not spent doing other things." End quote. Homework placed on top of an already full schedule of school work leaves far less opportunity for the type of learning that doesn't involve traditional academic experiences. For, say, being with a family in a meaningful way. To read for pleasure. Um, which, by the way, statistically, has one of the most profoundly positive impacts on student development and achievement of any outside school task. Again, reading for pleasure is 
has been shown in the data, and I think people know this, is one of the biggest impacts on student learning. Homework leaves less time to make friends and socialize, to sleep, or just be a child. Remember the analogy I gave about my son exploring the outside world and finding an insect that inspired him to learn more? Heck, just being outside has, a tremendous, has tremendous health benefits. I believe it's recommended that children spend at least four hours a day outside for optimal development. When the heck did they have time for that? The American Education Research Association released an official policy statement that said, whenever homework crowds out social experience, outdoor recreation, other creative activities, and whenever it uses time that should be devoted to sleep, it is not meeting the basic needs of students and their development, end quote. It's a rare school that values the benefits of a wide variety of social, creative, outdoor, and family activities. Just think about what crucial aspects of human life and development that homework displaces. Parents, let's take a look at it from their point of view. In a social science study done a few years back, it was found that the number one statement parents first make to high school students after they get home from school is, how much homework do you have? Homework is setting the stage for the parent-child relationship. How exciting is that? Furthermore, it was shown that this is a huge source of stress for parents who find themselves becoming the keepers of making their children do more of something they don't want to do and that the parents don't understand themselves. But it's what's been done for a long time, so we have to enforce it. Often, parents are the ones who have to help their children with the homework that they don't understand as well. Putting aside the equity issues here, like the fact that some parents work nights or aren't available, available for other reasons, is it a good idea to leave parents to be the ones to figure out the content and tutor their kids? Remember that eight bosses quote about working in Times Square? Each teacher is likely to have a unique way they want the homework done, and the parents often bear the brunt of it because they have to be the ones to enforce the rules. Now, again, I'm talking about a normative, traditional sense of homework. I know that there are teachers that, that really think about these things when they, when they implement their homework, so I'm not trying to um, piss anybody off here that is trying to do a better job. Um, I'm only stating some of the obvious things about the negative elements of homework. My wife, uh, for instance, was a very high-achieving student, and one of uh, her strongest subjects was math. However, she had vivid memories of working on math homework with her father, who also excelled in math. She says she never cried over any other homework besides math. She recalled moments of her father trying over and over to explain an equation to her and how she just wasn't getting it, which was causing her father to become frustrated, and then everybody becomes more frustrated, and the circle continues to more and more frustration. I assume that there are many fights between parents and their children that are sourced from homework. There's already enough variables to worry about in the father-teenage-daughter dynamic. Why add so much stress to it? That when there isn't even any data to back up that this is going to be meaningful for them. How many parents can remember having similar struggles with their, with their kids or with parents when they were kids? Now, imagine if my wife was having a thoughtful discussion with her father about both of their appreciations for math and how it worked in the world. One of the major arguments in support of homework is that it leads to dialogue between parents and children about learning, and I agree this should be promoted. Again, there's the equity issue, of course, but does our traditional application of homework really lead to meaningful discourse on learning? I'll share some thoughts on that when I get to my dream homework policy, as I, which I see as like a solution. Evidence shows that homework doesn't lead to deep and meaningful exchanges in the house about content. Rather, the focus of discourse is on completion. 
meaning the point of homework is not about actually learning or deriving pleasure from learning. Rather, it's something to be finished. It often becomes an unwelcome guest in the family dynamic. Many students have shared and other teachers have confirmed that students just complete the busy work for credit. If you do this homework, it raises your grade. It's just something to be finished to earn points. And in my wife's case, her father was really good at math. He understood the content. He might not have been teaching it the same way the teacher wanted it done, but he knew how to solve the equations in his own way. But what about when parents don't understand the content? Is it likely that the parents might actually harm the process that the teacher had in mind? Again, should we expect parents to be able to support as a tutor in the first place? So then what does a student do when they don't understand the homework? Go to a tutor? Does that fit into their schedule? They don't have a free period. Are they going to spend three times as much hours on it than another student who already understands the content well enough and who's just completing the homework for points anyway? Which begs the question, is the goal of school to get students used to always doing repetitive mindless work or to learn to love and find meaning in the learning? If the hope is that they already understand the content, then is it necessary to do it beyond the already A plus hours they spent at school? I can already hear the response. Practice makes perfect. And in some cases, this is true. But wait, there's an important difference between behavior and understanding. What does, what does rote practice improve? Is understanding passively absorbed, absorbed or actively constructed? When, when we drill on something until it becomes second nature, we often do it mindlessly. That's the point of that practice. What can be done without thinking usually is. Practice leads to habit, which is by definition, a mind, by definition a mindless behavior, not understanding, which means the behavior will be limited in scope. I practice, and for instance, I practice an ice hockey move over and over and over until my body did it without me even thinking about it, and I could apply it more and more as an instinctive behavior. I'm conditioning my behavior, my fine motor skills, and then I can do it without even thinking. So is homework about understanding or conditioning? I'm not saying conditioning is all bad either. Changing bad habits requires conditioning. I had to work hard to build new patterns in my own behavior to try and become a more ethical and, and empathetic person in action. But what are we conditioning students for? What if we're conditioning students for creativity? Crazy idea, right? Now, if you were practicing an instrument to be able to then play in a band and write music, that makes sense. I'm not saying it's all bad or doesn't work in specific situations. I think it's fair to say that our current homework traditions do not leave a lot of room for creativity or agency or socio-emotional learning. And I do have thoughts on how it could be more creatively focused. Currently, it seems to all con it's just all about conditioning us to sit straight, learn discipline, the type of discipline that my student was thinking about when he asked, without homework, how will they prepare us for the factory system? It appears to currently be more about conditioning us to follow the rules, to view school as a checklist, to the point that eventually we stop asking questions, questions like, why do we do this in the first place? Is there evidence to back it up? And can it be better? The average three hours of homework students get at my school doesn't leave much time for students to spend with their families. I was just listening to a student in an SEL club I sponsor at school who was saying that they don't really have time to have dinner with their parents and often goes days without seeing them for more than a few seconds in passing. This was after sharing that they normally don't complete homework until after midnight and then are either too exhausted to sleep or their brain won't stop thinking about the work completed and work still needing to get done or maybe about an upcoming test. Basically, anxiety keeps them up. <laughs> 
A number of students have shared with me that they, they use melatonin to fall asleep every single night, which isn't exactly healthy or safe, even though it's sold over the counter. I asked this, this one student why they think they do the homework in the first place, and I left that pretty open-ended for interpretation. The response, I guess maybe it's better for practice. Sometimes it's to practice something we learned that day, but the other night I received math homework in which half of it was based on things we learned about and the other half was new. The teacher said we should only do as much as we could, and I tried to get tutored on the new stuff but couldn't figure it out, and then I lost points for not doing those problems. After a pause, the student added, I guess I do homework for the points. After slaving on something for a while and seeing that five out of five pop up in the grade book, I guess that's really why I do it. Because getting all the points I can get gets me closer to getting into the college I want. It's like an immediate gratification thing. Maybe we should turn homework points into Facebook likes. That would seem like a really conducive uh, thing to do. These types of conversations obviously make me sad. That's a large part of what motivates this podcast. We need to think hard about the difference between asking, how do we make our students more self-disciplined, no matter how joyless, to how do we make students more psychologically healthy and happy and cultivate a joyful rigor towards the learning process. I followed up by asking whether or not practicing something for 30 minutes a night uh, that they already knew was helpful to them? Do students who already know the material need the practice? And again, what about those who don't? I'm just asking questions. In the student situation I just shared, they sought, they sought tutoring and spent extra time trying to figure, out, figure something out. And ultimately, they failed, which led to fewer points gained on that project, points that represent the prize to them or the benefit of doing homework in the first place. What's the lesson here then? Careful not to confuse rigor with quality. I want my children to value quality and hard work, but not to become desensitized to being overworked or sleep deprived. That's extremely harmful to their overall well-being and success in life. If school is something to endure, well, then homework makes a lot of sense in that goal. If school is about an accumulation of points to serve as an important checkbox towards college acceptance and subsequent debt as part of a big competitive race that has more to do with privilege than anything else, then piling on more homework to cover more content in fewer days might make sense. If your goal is to deepen understanding while cultivating a love for and motivation towards learning, well, the data doesn't seem to support that. In fact, doing more homework correlates with lower achievement on traditional measures and assessments. And again, let's reflect on the fact that children are doing homework as early as kindergarten. Because, of course, we have to prepare them for something that's terrible and useless by getting them used to it as early as possible. We far too rarely ask what's develop developmentally appropriate when deciding on practice and policy. The more time students spend doing something that isn't supported in the data, the less time they have to do things that are supported by the data. I know I said this already, but reading for pleasure is shown to have significant impacts on student cognition and achievement on traditional assessments and, and beyond. I was part of a group uh, conversation with students recently uh, in the library about reading for pleasure. All of them said that they don't have the time. Many of them talked about having a love for reading or knowing someone that did and how they just can't find the time anymore and how sad that was. One student said, quote, how can I read for pleasure when I have to read 15 pages in my econ textbook that I have to read three times over because I never remember what I just read. I just see the words in order over and over and over, like in one ear, out the other, end quote. Okay, so I, that's 
very depressing, right? I feel like I've shared so much depressing information and not enough solutions. Um, so let, let me share with you what I view as a solution and what my ideal homework policy would look like. So in terms of what I would need, I, I see four main policy points. The first policy point would be that to make homework optional. Because of equity issues, homework is optional. Students have very different home situations and abilities to complete homework in a reasonable time. The default shouldn't be that homework is assigned, rather that teachers should have to defend the reason to assign it after thoughtful reflection. Some of this is taken from Alfie Cohn's book, The Homework Myth, but I digress. <clears throat> Number two, it's ungraded. In large part because grading homework increases the equity gap. Homework will always be ungraded in my homework policy. We need to think long and hard about what a grade really means anyway. Grades are often the only motivation for students today, and I'm not sh so sure that's a good thing. Students are kind of mindlessly trying to get more points versus thinking about what they are learning and why. My third point of policy would be that type of homework we're going to assign if we're going to assign homework. And I think it should be project-based and relevant. Those would be two major ways to measure your homework. Homework should involve experiences and activities that cannot be completed at school. Say, for instance, interviewing a family member for a large project or counting how many red lights you hit on the way home as part of a statistics project and how the laws of probability impact their lives. Homework should be relevant to the home environment, hence the home part of the work, and further connect learning to the students' lives. It's an opportunity to bring their learning outside of the classroom and into the world, and I think it's a shame to then make them go right back into the textbooks that they're using in the classroom or the specific content that they're using in the classroom without making those connections. My fourth and final policy point would be around student agency. Students should decide how to best prepare for the next day's learning. Learning is motivated through a source of curiosity, interest, and inspiration. Kids need more agency in their learning, period. And if we are truly preparing students for college, as is often said, when and where will they be, when and where they will be on their own for the first time, without someone scheduling their every move, we should be cultivating the ability to manage their own lives and learning when there is some structure. This also helps to cure the equity issue in a lot of ways. It provides students the opportunity to figure it out for themselves and make it work for what they need. I was talking with a Spanish teacher whose policy kind of reflects this, and he said, I quote, I show them where they need to be and provide them with options on how to get there. Then I let them tell me what they need to do and support their efforts. Most students essentially create their own homework and studying habits out of this, end quote. But that's not where I would stop with a homework policy. I would also like to add some values. Um, I think that far too often schools are not built around values that reflect on where students are, what their needs are, and the goals of general education and how it fits with society. Most schools have a mission and vision, mission and vision, but rarely are they acted upon. 
In my dream school situation, the homework policy, and I would probably call it more of a homework philosophy and mission, would also have a set of values. And these are, number one, our school knows that the data on reading for pleasure is overwhelming in its correlation with human development, cognition, and education achievement outcomes across the board. Immersing oneself in the conceptual imagery, imagination forming, and experience of assuming the viewpoint of another character offers a deep level of introspection and powerful growth. Therefore, we value having free time in students' schedules to investigate options and dig into the literature of their choosing. Number two, we value family time. We know how busy life gets and how hard it is to hold on to the day-to-day events of our children and how much a strong family dynamic can support human development for everyone. Therefore, not only do we make efforts to equitably support our many diverse and unique families, but also take the step to ensure that there is time for your family to come together every evening if, if your schedules allow for it. Homework will not be a nightly impediment to your quality family time. Our third, my third value would be sleep. We are well aware of the intense growth your child is experiencing. If they are in middle or high school or early high school, they are growing at a rate only dwarfed by infancy. Their bodies require enough sleep for healthy, optimal development, which in turn fuels their abilities to achieve during the day. Lack of sleep increases issues with anxiety, depression, and overall wellness in profound ways. Homework will not get in the way of students getting up to the 10 hours of scientifically recommended sleep for teenagers. Number four, we value time for unstructured exploration, social activities, and play that are connected to a formal or that are not connected to a formal or standardized curriculum. Humans are social creatures and learn so much through play, be it sports, activities, just hanging out with friends, or even challenging themselves to master a video game, just to name a few. Kids need the time and space to be themselves and make choices about their hobbies and areas of interest in order to be happier, healthier, and more curious about their worlds. My final value would be that we value and will make efforts to establish a dialogue with parents that help us learn and provide personal forums for information. We will facilitate monthly meeting times and spaces for family interaction focused on learning and information about students' home life. Notice I said family interaction, not family lecture. Creating time and space where families can come, parents can come to the school or another area, maybe in the community, and meet with leaders and teachers in that school to talk and integrate and share experiences to interact with each other, not just to be hurt, like listened to or to be talked at. So that's basically what my dream homework policy slash philosophy would say and promote. Um, And I want to be mindful of the fact that Um, I've just said about 9,000 words, (laughs) and I know this is getting a little long on the subject, but these two areas are just so intertwined that I didn't want to separate them, schedule and homework. But I need to wrap up the main themes I'm trying to investigate here. So let me share just for a second a bit about or a minute about my process. Most of the content here is influenced by my education, uh, graduate work, personal readings, etc., and my own experience as a teacher engaging with students as individuals with a variety of abilities, learning styles, and points of view. 
It comes from many uh, of my conversations with other teachers and also parents, but is again informed by my formal education experience as studies, research, and as much as possible empirical data. But when I'm engaging in or thinking about a theme such as this one, I will go and I'll ask students what they think and try to get really quality feedback in which I can kind of uh, sift through what I think might just be hyperbole versus when I think that these students are actually speaking a truth that they experience. Hence, some of the student thoughts and experiences I've shared today, right? This often forces me to reevaluate and dig deeper into the content and my own practice, because after all, a fundamental concept of my work is to understand and prioritize the individual student experience, their goals, their unique learning styles and intelligences, and the lives they live inside and outside of the school experience. All while asking over and over and over what promotes optimal human development and cognition across a variety of manifestations, what actually leads to learning. Today, we covered the school schedule and implications of homework on student learning and how that correlates with biological, cultural, and environmental realities. I mentioned ontological design early on and how what we design design us back. back. The fact that our systems are specifically designed to create the results they do. Um, I was actually part of a meeting today at my school, I'm recording this at school, about homework in an SEL committee. And one of the things I shared was um, in response to social media constantly coming up as maybe one of the reasons our kids are so stressed and can't get their work done and are suffering from depression and anxiety because that's the new thing. We've been giving all this homework for so long, but the new thing is social media. I mean, obviously, we could also reflect on the fact that when we were doing this 20, 30, 50 years ago, it was wrong then. But still, just that idea of social media, it, it it gave me pause and I responded by saying the current education system we are in right now, we have the industrial revolution to thank for that. People coming together and deciding we need to prepare people for this world that's going to come and is starting to exist today. And this is how we should build our education around it to fill that specific need. We are dealing with all these issues or just results of the digital uh, revolution, which we haven't even really hit the culmin, uh, the climax of. We're just like getting there, and we're ha- we we think we have all these issues, but we've never stopped to say when should we create an education system around those needs. We've never moved away from the industrial system and said, "Hey, we're in the digital revolution now. We should be creating our education to serve the needs of the digital revolution." So if we're going to com- constantly bring up social media as an issue, when are we going to talk about how to teach kids how to use that material? Where are they learning about digital media? Where are they learning about visual literacy? Where are they learning about creativity, coding, and the things that lead to the algorithms that create the social media that they're dealing with? Where's that as a core curricular class, given that we are in the digital revolution today, right? And so while I think those things are important, I don't want them to necessarily take away from the conversation that we're having specifically about homework. It's a separate issue. You, although intertwined, and that's one of the reasons I love talking about homework because I think it creates a bridge, a more accessible bridge to having these deeper conversations at a fundamental level. I ended up sharing my homework policy with you all 
Uh, and then I shared it also with a class after writing it first because that's part of my process. Many of the students' point of views that I shared in this episode were from this specific class, even though they conf- and even though these students confessed extreme stress and depression, health issues, and a lack of excitement for the learning process, learning experience, still most of them became devil's advocates in response to my homework policy and found themselves arguing for the overwhelming amount of homework that they get every day. I was a little bit surprised, but not completely, because I know that students ask for freedom, and then when I give it to them, they struggle with it because they don't know what that looks like, and they're just so good at the status quo, even if it's like harming them, their health, they've figured out how to do it, and they don't want to figure out something else. Their arguments actually sounded a lot like those of many teachers when first introduced to the actual data on homework. It's very important to understand why some teachers would react defensively when having these conversations because it's part of something they've been doing for 20 years, maybe even more, and it feels like a personal attack or threat to say, what you've been doing is wrong or not working. I hope that we can cultivate these conversations in a way that inspire them to reflect and be open to what's being said because honestly, obviously, that is what learning is, to be reflecting and open. And if teachers can't be reflective and open, then how can we even get to real learning with students? Seeing the evidence, you know, a lot of times these people see the evidence as a threat against their way of life, right? And students see that as well. They're doing all this work. They're going through all this stress darn it, it better be for a good reason. When pressed, though, it is hard to defend and most end up having to shift their point of view towards the acknowledgement that less homework is ideal or quality homework versus busy work. Furthermore, they often end up using some sort of argument that that, uh, the results of the traditional and outdated system we have impose these realities on us, and that's just the way the world works. Because the thing is bad, I have to do bad things, and that's just the way it is. The most common response is, we need to have the homework in order to cover all the content in a short period of time. The students were even saying this, and it's definitely one of the first responses I get from teachers. Um, I got that from, a, from two math teachers I was talking to yesterday about this topic. And you know, when pressed and asked about it, um, it starts to open up some holes and, and opportunities to discuss the bigger structural issues with education, all the requirements and standardization and, and, and race to get people to the exact same spot. It kind of starts to fall apart. My favorite thing about these responses is that, is that they allow us to get to the heart of the original problem. And like one of the things I asked these math teachers is, who dictates that you have to cover all that content in that specific time? And really the answer ends up being the status quo because that's what it's expected. That's what other schools are going to be teaching, so they have to teach the same thing to make sure that we're t- our kids are just as advanced as the kids at another school so that when they get to college, you know, so on and so on and so on and so on. Why are we treating school like a race is an obvious question there, and I think that most teachers really struggle with that, and it opens up Uh, a little bit more reflection because they see the inherent issues. When do students get to decide for themselves is another really important response. Where's the room for engaging in the creative process here? Again, the number one skill, I'll say this over and over and over, I say it almost every day, the number one skill required in the current and future economy is creativity. But also, 
you know, that involves being curious and inspired, connecting to the world and people, exploring, experimenting, and playing, and having the imagination capable of envisioning new possibilities. I hope I've presented a strong case for how our traditional structures in terms of schedule and homework impede what we say we want for our children and how they impede creativity and student agency, two pillars in what I believe should be the goals of education. One of my favorite elements from my conversation with Michael Skura was that Groundhog Day reference. Bill Murray's character has to fail over and over until he even realizes the goal he should have been striving for in the first place. He uses his failures as a source for really deep and meaningful growth and learning. Do we create the space and structures for this with our own students? Do finite grades and test scores allow for that kind of growth? Learning is not a finite system. Why have we built such finite structures around it? Grades, your A stays with you for the rest of your life. That C you got in your freshman year is going to keep you from getting into the college you want, even though now you would never get another C. It is absurd, obviously, that those types of things are what we're promoting in our education systems. I want to leave you with one last student story before I hit that stop recording button. A student, uh, recently a student in our art program came back from an extended leave due to an anxiety-related hospitalization. The student's mother shared with my colleague that she was persuaded, and maybe persuaded is a hard word, it's hard to tell, it was definitely suggested during her re-entry meeting that she drop her drawing and painting class so that she could have a free period to complete her overbearing homework load. The student's mother responded that they would never consider it given how much of a stress release it provides in the day and how much she enjoys growing through the visual arts. This particular student happens to be one of the most improved artists I've, I've ever had in an art foundations class, largely because she gets so much out of it. Our structure would rather take that away to make room for something that does not improve development or achievement, but does cause negative harm on that development as supported by the data we have. And I'm not trying to blame the counselors here. Again, my issues are not the people in the system, it's the system. I believe that these counselors and the psychologists do value the work we do, truly, honestly, some of the biggest compliments I've gotten in my professional career have come from them and how we, they think that we save kids from on, on certain, in certain instances. But obviously something is going on here, right? Um, for example, connecting back to the work and book I briefly mentioned by Dr. Shapiro, um, research has identified curiosity as a significant factor for stress tolerance and as a protection against depression. New research is making a strong correlation between depression and a lack of novelty and curiosity. Evidence suggests that those suffering from depression have a shrunken hippocampus and are unable to recognize novelty. Interestingly, Dopamine levels spike when the brain encounters novelty, which activates pleasure centers and encourages us to explore and learn more. There's a reason why art therapy is a thing, after all. It's the default to say that the arts are expendable, that creativity and student agency do not fit into our current structure, and everybody is just overwhelmed and super busy trying to keep up in the rat race, the meritocracy of structure that we've built, where I'm assuming that it's just like, sometimes it's just, that is the easiest thing, the quickest thing to do is to just remove art because they don't, it's not required, they don't need it, and they need more space in their schedule. 
but the arts and creativity are not a luxury. They are crucial aspects of the human experience and at the foundation of our evolution and development. Not providing space for them or taking them away from students is a direct assault against their learning and development in the first place, and it must be seen as such. This is not an extreme point of view. It's just a fact of science and nature. The most important part of investing in creativity and innovating education is to first reform the current structures that confine, no restrict, and rob students of those fundamental experiences. There's obviously a lot more to cover on the structure theme, such as graduation requirements, funding inequities, technology and communication, how we communicate, using the community as a source to change these structures, talking about how our mindsets are, are structured by the structure itself, and so much more. And I look really forward to doing that work with you. But we've reached the end of this episode, and as, and as always, um, truly, thank you for listening. I mean, really, it, it means a lot to me. Um, I, I'm doing this work because I wanted to put it out there, and it's not obviously... Uh, useful if it's not being listened to. Uh, and please let me know what you think. Let, let me leave you with one last important question that I hope to focus on going forward. Given everything we've discussed here, what is the best way to cultivate conversations with other staff, peers, leaders, students, and parents? Remember, quote, the opposite of bravery is not cowardice. It's the status quo. Thank you.